Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today, we are going to talk about Methodist minister William Apis. And sometimes he is described as the first Native American to publish their own book-length autobiography, That doesn't really capture the full scope of it, though, because it kind of makes it sound like his biggest achievement was, like, meeting an arbitrary European standard of success. His whole body of work, though, including that autobiography, in a way turned that whole idea on its head. He was using European rhetoric as a tool to demonstrate the shared humanity of indigenous people and to advocate for autonomy and self-determination and also to point out a lot of injustice and hypocrisy on the part of white society and in particular white Christians. This episode turned into an accidental two-parter largely because there were so many things in that body of written work that I wanted to include. So today, we're going to talk about the first part of William Apis's life. That is the part that was covered in his autobiography. And that lay the ground for his later work and his later advocacy. Heads up, though, this episode includes some violent racism and also the abuse of a child. And we're going to be talking about Apis's struggles with alcohol. William Apes was born, William Apes with one S, on January 31st, 1798 in Coleraine, Massachusetts. He added that second S to his last name as an adult. Coleraine is north of Northampton and Amherst, right on the border with Vermont. William's father was also named William and had both Pequot and European ancestry. The elder William was a shoemaker and, like other men in their extended family, he had served as a soldier. William Apis's mother is usually described as his father's wife, Candace, who probably had both indigenous and African ancestry, But it's possible that Candace was really the younger William's stepmother. She was enslaved by a man that William's father worked for. That was Captain Joseph Taylor of Colchester, Connecticut. Taylor manumitted Candace in 1805. And it's not really likely that she would have been in Coleraine before that point, because Coleraine and Colchester were roughly 90 miles apart and in two different states. William Apis's autobiography definitively says that he was born in Coleraine, though, and that the family moved to Colchester after that. Apis's autobiography also says that his grandmother told him he was descended from Wampanoag Sachin Metacomet, who colonists called King Philip. But he doesn't describe Metacomet as Wampanoag. He describes him as Pequot, and these are two different Algonquian-speaking peoples. This error likely came from the work of Elias Boudinot, a white politician and president of the Second Continental Congress. Boudinot wrote a book called A Star in the West, or A Humble Attempt to Discover the Long-Lost Ten Tribes of Israel, preparatory to their return to their beloved city, Jerusalem. And that book argued that North America's indigenous peoples were descended from a lost tribe of Jews. Apes reworked portions of this book into an appendix in the second edition of his autobiography. So if this is indeed an error that Apis picked up from Boudinot, there's some irony here, because when Apis's autobiography was first published, critics took note of it, and they used this error as evidence that indigenous people's recording of their own history was wrong. But that was not Apis's 
recording of his own history, Boudinot, who had written that error, was white. And just to be clear, in case this name is ringing a bell for anybody, there's also a Cherokee man who adopted Elias Boudinot's name after meeting him. We actually talked about this other Elias Boudinot on the show before in our episode on the Foreign Mission School in Cornwall, Connecticut, and he is also going to come up in part two of this episode. There has been a lot of writing about whether this was intentional on Apes's part or just a simple error picked up from Boudinot's work, or whether it was a rhetorical device, or whether Apes had a Pequot ancestor who took refuge with the Wampanoag after the Pequot War in 1636 and 1637, in which hundreds of Pequots were killed. Many of the Pequot survivors of that war were enslaved by the colonists, and many of those who were not took refuge with other Algonquian-speaking nations. Or... Perhaps it was that Apes's mother was Pequot and his father was Wampanoag. What is clearest is that Apes identified himself as both Pequot and as a descendant of King Philip. There is a bit more on the Pequot War and on Metacomet in our episode on King Philip's War from February 19th, 2020, that will also come up again in part two. So to return to William's childhood... Something seems to have caused a rift in the family after they got to Colchester. They were incredibly poor, and William's parents were trying to support the family primarily by making baskets that they could sell to white people, and that was one of only a very few ways that most indigenous people in the area were able to earn an income. His parents ultimately separated, and his father went back to Coleraine. Candace then left William along with two brothers and two sisters with her parents. In his autobiography, Apes describes this as a time of cruelty and deprivation, with both his grandparents misusing alcohol and neglecting him and his siblings. Then, when he was four, his grandmother beat him severely. His uncle was living with them and managed to get William away from her, and he went to a white neighbor named David Furman for help. Furman had already shown interest in the family, doing things like bringing milk for the children. When Furman realized that William's arm was broken in three places, he went to the town's select board and he asked to have William and his siblings removed from their grandparents' care. In his autobiography, Apis wrote of this, quote, I suppose that the reader will naturally say what savage creatures my grandparents were to treat unoffending or helpless children in this manner. But this treatment was the effect of some cause— I attribute it in part to the whites, because they introduced among my countrymen ardent spirits, seduced them into a love for it, and when under its baleful influence, wronged them out of their lawful possessions, that land where reposed the ashes of their sires. The day-to-day lives of William and his siblings seem to have been somewhat more stable with the Furmans than they were with their grandparents. He describes the Furman family as treating them tenderly and like their own children. This was also when William got his only formal education, attending a school for Black children during the winter. This was the typical schedule for boys, since they had to work during the warmer months. William went to the school for six winters. At the same time, though, William's account of his time with the Furmans includes multiple instances in which his treatment was far from tender— Furman's discipline could be harsh, including flogging or threatening to flog him. 
At one point, William was sick, and the doctor couldn't figure out the cause, and David Furman decided it was the work of the devil, and he tried to whip the sickness out of him with a birch branch. The Furmans were also Christians, and they raised William and his siblings as Christian while also generally trying to assimilate them into white society. And a lot of what William heard about indigenous people while living there was negative. He was threatened with being sent, quote, to the Indians in the woods as a punishment if he misbehaved, and most of the people around him described indigenous people as savage and dangerous. He internalized all of this to the point that when he saw some women in the woods while out gathering berries, women he described as having complexions, quote, dark as that of the natives, he was terrified of them and he fled. William managed to maintain at least some connection to his Pequot identity in spite of all of this, but it was clearly traumatic and very alienating. William's relationship with the Furmans evolved into an indenture as William got older. We'll talk about that after a quick sponsor break. When William and his siblings were removed from their grandparents' care, they essentially became wards of the town. And this evolved into an indenture. They were expected to work to pay for their room and board until they reached the age of 21. And the amount of work that was expected of them increased as they got older. This was a fairly typical way for communities in this part of New England to manage children who, for whatever reason, were not in the care of their families. This wasn't the same as an apprenticeship, though. An apprenticeship would have at least left children like William with skills and training that they could use potentially to support themselves as adults. But they mostly did basic chores and manual labor. So although David Furman was a barrel maker, he was not training William to be the same. He was just using William's labor. When William got to the age of about 11, he started rebelling against the Furman's expectations of him. He made friends with some older boys who encouraged him to get into some petty misbehavior, so things like stealing melons from somebody else's field. This raised more tensions between him and the Furmans. But another source of tension was on the opposite end of the spectrum from stealing melons. As we said earlier, the Furmans were raising William and his siblings as Christians. When he was about eight years old, William also started attending meetings of a group he called, quote, the Christians, These may have been followers of Elias Smith, who founded a denomination called the Christian Connection. Through attending these meetings, William resolved to try to live a better and more righteous life. But he also became so fond of going to these meetings that David Furman finally forbade him from doing it anymore. The tensions between William and Furman became more complicated when Furman's mother-in-law died. William had been extremely fond of her. One of William's older friends finally persuaded him to run away, but then told Furman about their plan. At this point, Furman seems to have gotten tired of dealing with all of this, and he sold the remaining time on William's indenture to Judge William Hillhouse, who lived in another town. This also didn't work out. Hillhouse was devoutly Presbyterian, and that was one of the more traditional denominations William still wanted to attend the meetings of this group he described as the Christians, and that was considered a lot more unorthodox. William went to meetings over Hillhouse's objections, and at one point he learned his father was living nearby and went to see him. 
This was something that William did at multiple points in his life, often when he was struggling or otherwise kind of unsettled. He didn't get to spend a lot of time with his father, but he did find a way to go see him at several of his lowest points. William's father, though, sent him back to Hill House, who then sold the remaining time on his indenture to General William Williams of New London, Connecticut. Williams was also devoutly Presbyterian and required William A. Pest to attend Presbyterian services rather than the meetings that he was more interested in. So his disputes over religion continued. Around the same time, Methodists started holding meetings in the area, and William went to some of them, and he found what he heard there really appealing. In the early 19th century, Methodists were more open to Black and Indigenous members than some other denominations. There were efforts specifically to preach to these communities, and the congregations that William saw were often racially integrated. Apis wrote in his autobiography, quote, I felt convinced that Christ died for all mankind, that age, sect, color, country, or situation made no difference. I felt an assurance that I was included in the plan of redemption with all my brethren. And he used the term brethren all through his autobiography to mean other indigenous people. On March 13, 1813, at the age of 15, William had the first of a series of epiphanies while working in the garden. A voice whispered to him, quote, Arise, thy sins which were many are all forgiven thee. Go in peace and sin no more. But the family of General William Williams was deeply opposed to William Apis's increasing religious devotion. They told him he was too young to be making these kinds of decisions for himself and started refusing to allow him to go to Methodist meetings. They gave him permission to attend only sometimes and then pretty grudgingly. William finally decided to leave with another boy named John. They took all of the money that William had and they headed for New York. However, one of the first things they spent some of William's money on was a bottle of rum, which was the start of his lifelong struggle with alcohol. Once William and John finally got to New York, John got a job on a sailing vessel and he left William to fend for himself. William did this by enlisting in the militia, This was during the War of 1812, and it's possible that he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps by becoming a soldier. But at the age of only 15, he wasn't considered old enough to actually fight. He told recruiters he was 17. They did not seem to have believed that because they made him a drummer. He wrote of this time, quote, I became almost as bad as any of them, could drink rum, play cards, and act as wickedly as any. I was at times tormented with the thoughts of death, but God had mercy on me and spared my life. In spite of his age, he also wound up in combat. In his mind, this change from drummer to fighting infantry violated the terms of his enlistment, so he tried to leave, but he was captured and charged with desertion. He fought in the Battle of Plattsburgh, also called the Battle of Lake Champlain, in September of 1814. This was a joint operation between the Army and Navy and was a decisive U.S. victory that led to the end of the war. Apes and the rest of his unit remained in Plattsburgh until after the Treaty of Ghent was signed on December 24, 1814. The end of the war was complicated for Apis. He described some of his fellow soldiers abandoning their posts as soon as they knew the war was over. In Apis's account, he waited until he had obtained a formal release, but he didn't receive the compensation he had been promised when he enlisted. 
That included $40 of bounty, 15 months of salary, and 60 acres of land. Apes attributed this non-payment to racism, that he and the other indigenous men who had fought alongside him were denied their compensation and their rights of citizenship because they were native. He does not seem to have understood that this so-called bounty land other veterans were receiving had been seized from indigenous peoples in Illinois, Missouri, and Arkansas. Apis spent the next stretch of his life in parts of Ontario, Canada, and in western New York, much of it among indigenous people. His account isn't specific, but they were likely among the five nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Some of what he had witnessed as a soldier had been really gruesome, and he said these images stayed with him for the rest of his life. He tried to cope with this and with the just huge amount of trauma from his earlier life through drinking, and then he struggled when he tried to stop. He did odd jobs, traveling from place to place wherever he could find a few months of work, and attending Methodist meetings where he found them. This period of his autobiography reads a little like two steps forward, one step back, sometimes finding himself in the company of spiritual people who helped him refocus his life, but other times with people who were often intoxicated or otherwise struggling. Things really seemed to change after he returned to Massachusetts, which we will get to after a sponsor break. In the fall of 1818, William Apis made his way to Groton, Massachusetts, which is northwest of Boston. His aunt, Sally George, lived there. He was reunited with her and with multiple other members of his family, most of whom had not seen him in years. A lot of them had thought that he must be dead. His aunt was Methodist, and he went to Methodist meetings with her. Of everybody in his family, she really seems to have been the most supportive of his spiritual pursuits. But it was still hard. In his words, quote, "'My soul was weighed down on account of my many transgressions.'" Eventually, though, Apes started to feel that he had been called for a spiritual purpose. First, by feeling that it was his duty to call sinners to repentance. Having come to this realization at a camp meeting, quote, "'I found all impediment of speech removed.'" My heart was enlarged. My soul glowed with holy fervor, and the blessing of the Almighty sanctified this my first public attempt to warn sinners of their danger and invite them to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was now in my proper element, just harnessed for the work with the fire of divine love burning on my heart. In December of 1818, Apis was baptized. Not long after that, he went to visit family in Coleraine, and there, quote, the Lord moved upon my heart in a peculiarly powerful manner, and by it I was led to believe that I was called to preach the gospel. This wasn't just about his own well-being. He saw that a lot of other indigenous people were also struggling and thought many of them were being harmed by white missionaries who didn't actually care for their well-being. So this gets a little complicated, In previous episodes of the show, we have talked about multiple efforts to use religion, specifically Christianity, as a tool to, quote, assimilate indigenous people into the white world. And places like the residential schools in the U.S. and the boarding schools in Canada, Christianization was an act of cultural genocide and a means for separating indigenous students from their families and their tribal and cultural heritage. 
Apis himself had lived through this on kind of a more limited level by being taken from his grandparents' care and placed with a white family who were trying to do a lot of the same thing. But Apis's approach to all of this was slightly different. He believed that the indigenous people of North America were one of the ten lost tribes of Israel who had disappeared after being attacked by the Assyrians in 721 BCE. So he saw Christianity as part of his indigeneity, and he used it as part of his advocacy for indigenous rights and tribal sovereignty. He thought the indigenous population of North America had an ancestry and a heritage that stretched all the way back to the biblical creation, and that God cared about people's souls, which were equally worthy, not their skin. In his words, quote, the proper term which ought to be applied to our nation to distinguish it from the rest of the human family is that of natives. And I humbly conceive that the natives of this country are the only people under heaven who have a just title to the name, inasmuch as we are the only people who retain the original complexion of our father Adam. So to add to the complexity here, White people also used this same idea to justify everything from forced removals of indigenous people to genocide. The Assyrian attack, which we just referenced, had been framed as a divine punishment of the tribes because they had turned away from the Hebrew gods. So under this mindset, Native Americans had done that and were also Jewish, which meant that anti-Semitism played a role in all of this. The lost tribes idea also undermined the cultures and the accomplishments of indigenous nations by sort of explaining them away as having really come from Judaism. This is all sort of akin to claiming that indigenous works of art and architecture were really the work of aliens, and it also has parallels to the use of biblical arguments to justify the institution of slavery. Apes, though, was seeing all of this as part of indigenous people's inherent worth and place in the kingdom of God, equal to that of white people. At the same time, as Apes was starting his work as an itinerant preacher, he was also working through a lot from his earlier life. In his autobiography, he wrote about living through a lot of indoctrination and shame, and it's clear that over the years that he was being fostered and indentured, and then when he was a soldier, he had internalized a lot of anti-Indigenous stereotypes. For example, he wrote, quote, I thought it disgraceful to be called an Indian. It was considered as a slur upon an oppressed and scattered nation, and I have often been led to inquire where the whites received this word, which they so often threw as an opprobrious epithet at the sons of the forest. I could not find it in the Bible and therefore concluded that it was a word imported for the special purpose of degrading us. But ultimately, he saw the souls of all humanity as having the same inherent connection to God. In his Experience of the Missionary, which was published later on as part of his work, The Experience of Five Christian Indians of the Pequod Tribe, he wrote, quote, the white man finds so much fault because God has made us thus. Yet if I have any vanity about it, I choose to remain as I am and praise my maker while I live that Indians he has made. In December of 1821, Apes married a woman named Mary Wood of Salem, Connecticut, who was about 10 years older than he was. Some sources describe her as white, but Apes describes her as, quote, nearly the same color as myself. They had met at a Methodist meeting where he was preaching, and they went on to have at least two children. 
They established a home in Providence, Rhode Island, but he traveled all over New England preaching, sending money back to the family. A lot of the congregations he drew were Black and Indigenous, but there were also white people, some drawn by curiosity and some drawn by his reputation as a preacher. At first, he wasn't formally ordained, and the Methodist Church hadn't authorized him to preach in any way. Eventually, he got an exhorting license. It's basically a license to work as a lay minister. On April 11, 1827, he went through the exams that were required to become formally ordained in the Methodist Church, which was then known as the Methodist Episcopal Church. At this point in history, the process of becoming ordained required an examination by a committee, and it was possible for a person to become qualified to be ordained through self-study. It was not like today where people go to seminary and essentially get an an advanced degree in in a religion first. Uh, He thought his examination had gone well, and afterward the committee told him that the church didn't know enough about his character to ordain him. The committee advised him to just renew his license to exhort, which led him to ask, quote, as this conference refused me a license to preach on the ground that its members did not know enough of my character, had they any right to grant a license to exhort at the same time that they refused one to preach? His conclusion was that even though the Methodist Church said that it welcomed people of all races, this denial was because of his race, So he left the Methodist Episcopal Church to join another faction of Methodists called the Protestant Methodist Church. The Protestant Methodist Church ordained him on August 8, 1831. In between his examination with the Methodist Episcopal Church and his ordination with the Protestant Methodist, he published his autobiography. That was A Son of the Forest, The Experience of William Apes, A Native of the Forest. This was the first of five books that he would write over the next seven years, and it documented his life up to his decision to leave the Methodist Episcopal Church at the age of 31. It was published before he added that second S to his last name. He published a second edition in 1831. That's one that, for some unclear reasons, softened a lot of his criticisms of the Methodist Episcopal Church, It took out a lot of naming names he had done about the people who had prevented him from becoming ordained and a lot of his justifications for joining the Protestant Methodists. The reason that's given in the text itself was that he had slightly abridged the earlier version to make room for an appendix, which, as we said earlier, included a lot of Elias Boudinot's A Star in the West. He also published a sermon in 1831 titled The Increase of the Kingdom of Christ, and that included an appendix as well, this one called The Indians, the Ten Lost Tribes. These publications were coming out alongside a massive and horrific injustice that the United States committed against indigenous nations and peoples. Multiple states had been trying to forcibly remove their indigenous population, and on May 28, 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act into law. This set the stage for the forced removal of indigenous peoples to land west of the Mississippi River. Sometimes this is called the Cherokee removal, but it targeted multiple other nations as well, including the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee Creek, and Seminole. William Apis doesn't directly address this in his autobiography. It is more focused on his own spiritual journey and the innate humanity of all of his brethren and the many injustices that indigenous people had faced more generally, including at the hands of purported Christians. 
But not long after publishing his autobiography, that changed, and that is what we will talk about in our next episode. As we wait for part two, do you have listener mail? I do. It is from Montana, and uh, I really love this email. And Montana wrote, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to Stuff You Missed in History Class since 2015 and have long wanted to write, but the recent episode on Lucy Parsons finally pushed me to do so. I'm a doctoral student, and my focus is on race, gender, and economics in the 19th century U.S. South. While I was familiar with Parsons' labor activism, I was not aware that she and her mother had been taken to Texas during the Civil War. My dissertation focuses on enslaved women like Charlotte and Lucy who were coercively moved to Texas by enslavers as a last-ditch effort to outrun emancipation. My research focuses on the slaveholding and enslaved women who made or were forced to make this move and how this domestic disruption followed by emancipation and the collapse of the Confederacy impacted women's conceptions of motherhood and identity. Lucy and her mother were fortunate in that I have found significant evidence that enslaved children were often abandoned en route to Texas as slaveholders promoted expediency and deemed children as poor investments for the journey. Still, enslaved mothers fought to take their children with them and shepherded their broods at great personal, physical, and mental expense. Adding to this stress and trauma, sexual violence against enslaved people was rampant along the roadside and meant that countless women entered Texas as expectant or new mothers. My goal is lofty, but I hope to bring the stories of some of these women to light and honor the ways in which they fought for themselves and their children. I can now add Charlotte and Lucy to my growing list of sources. I could truly ramble about this forever, but I will spare you all that. I want to thank you also for changing the way that I teach and increasing participation in my classroom. I teach undergraduate history classes at a large state university and struggled with getting students to read their textbook assignments. I decided two years ago to forego textbooks altogether and instead assign one podcast and a handful of primary source readings each week. Not only does this spare my students from having to purchase expensive books they won't reuse, I've found that students are far more interested and engaged since making the switch. Stuff You Missed in History Class has become a syllabus staple for me. I'm also attaching pictures of my kitties for you. I love any opportunity to brag about them. Millie is our oldest girl, a white calico. Ash is our orange friend. Opal is our fluffy princess. And Pip is our blind little rascal. I take my comprehensive exams next week. And I promised myself a celebratory cat tattoo when they're finished. I apologize for this novella of an email. Please don't apologize for this novella of an email. This is great, and it made both of us cry. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your time, hard work, your compassion, and your humor. Each episode, I hope that you're both well. Montana, thank you so much for this email, Montana. Number one, what a great doctoral project. Yes. I am so glad this is work that someone is doing. Um, the uh, the biography of Lucy Parsons that I read referenced that this re- this relocation from where they were into Texas was probably basically a forced march and it would have been awful. And so taking a look at the the greater impact of that I I think is super important. Also, man, these cats are so cute. <laughs> uh, one of them is in a a white fluffy bed. And I think we have that exact same bed. <laughs> we have a cat who is also named Opal. And for a while, Opal was really into that bed. And then she just decided 
just does not exist anymore. So, because <laughs> she's a cat. Now she's a decoration on our living room floor. Um, thank you again so, 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 so much for every word of this email, Montana. I would also like to interject a request, which is please send us a picture of your cat tattoo when you get it. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, if you want to send us a note about anything, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're also all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.